0: If you were going to start a religious organization, how would you go about it? A lot of people are doing that practically every day, it seems. I hear of some new religious organizations springing up. There are a lot of teachers who have come out of the church organization, the past one and this present one, who have tried to create new church organizations. They seem to spring up like mushrooms. They take many different forms. Sometimes it's merely a would-be prophet or seer who comes up with a new doctrine. Or he reverts back to an old doctrine. In some cases, there were those who refused to go along with the change, if you want to call it that, or new understanding, or perhaps development or progress would be a better word, in the understanding of the doctrine on divorce and remarriage, or in the understanding on how to count and to compute the day on which we ought to observe Pentecost. At that time, there were people who jumped overboard on the right, And they refuse to change because any change is looked upon by reactionaries and by very restrictive uh, people of this nature as unhealthy, unwholesome. And people who are for change are called liberal. So the ones who built a new church on let's stick to the old dates and the old way of doing things have a whole new church organization. There are members sitting there right now today probably on the Sabbath They have a whole string of booklets and publications and a ministry. They observe the Feast of Tabernacles, but they observe Pentecost on a Monday, and they still have the same old doctrine of DNR, as we say. Now, there are other organizations that have sprung up here and there down through the years. We know the Amish, the Hutterites, the Mormons, the Seventh-day Adventists, some of the other smaller cults and sects, including some of those that have taken up with Eastern and Oriental religion and mysticism, like the Moonies, the Hare Krishna, I saw one of those characters recently walking down the street in L.A. Now, therefore, if you were going to concoct religion, let's say that you're just sitting there deciding, how can I make a living? There are lots of religions in the world. How would you go about it? What type of garb would you require? Would you want to construct a temple? Would it be a formal kind of religion where it involved a very sedentary or a very sedate, uh, formal very labyrinthal, intricate, difficult, ceremonial kind of religion where you had to learn all sorts of body English, like perhaps high mass in the Catholic Church. When do you genuflect, and how do you cross yourself, and when do you dip into the holy water? Would you say that it's a sin and decide that men must not, under any uh, occasions, touch a razor to their face? And like the house of David, as it's called, All the men must wear facial hair. Or would you say, like some religions do, that it's a sin for a lady to touch scissors to her hair and that she must never cut her hair in her entire life? The reverse of the Nazarite vow and men like Samson. If you were going to start a religion, probably the last way you would start it would be the way Jesus did. It would be the last way that a human being, a carnal, egotistical, power-hungry, money-grabbing human being would start a religion, would be the way Jesus did. Over in James, the first chapter, reading about the law, he says, beginning in verse 20, or 21, we'll read on up to it, For the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be you doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like unto a man looking at himself in a mirror. He sees himself, and he goes his way, and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty, the Ten Commandments is not a restrictive law that restrains you, or imprisons you, or places you in some kind of a spiritual straitjacket, It does not impede you from developing your greatest potential, from becoming a very scintillating and very sparkling and friendly and loving and outgoing personality. It does not keep from you anything at all of the physical pleasures that are right and good, good for you, and which don't give hangovers later on. Whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. If any man among you seem to be religious... Now, I've met many such people. I would just say, without being gossipy about it, out of the pulpit, are a little more religious than other people. And you might all, in your own circle of acquaintances, know such people. There are people who tend to be religious hobbyists. They just seem to delve into, just dive over into a veritable bottomless pit of religion. Any kind of religion will do. Just keep me embroiled in, involved in, thinking about, reading, studying, and ear to the ground. What are other religions doing? What are other preachers preaching? What are other people doing? What are their habits and customs? And just continually absorbing yourself like a sponge soaking up religiosity and being involved in religion. Are there people in your circle of acquaintances who seem to be religious? I know many such people. If people seem to be religious and bridles not his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Now, I won't won't go into a lot of of the past, of uh, very ugly experiences of many people who, by attendance in church, by being a baptized member, by going through the usual rigamo, attendance, of course, tithe-paying, presence at the Feast of Tabernacles, reading all the required literature, etc., but are some of the most malicious, vicious, hate-mongering gossips that the world has ever known. But if you ever know of any such people, this applies to them. That man's religion, no matter his garb, his saintly expression, His attendance in church, his faithful tithe paying, and all the trappings that one might assume proves religion. His religion is vain. Well, now, let's say we're going to start a church. We're going to be one of these people who says, I'm disgusted with organized religion. I don't like these guys. I'm against this ism and that ism. I'm going to break off here, and I'm going to start my own religion. How will I go about it? What will be my doctrine? What will be the little kind of a hook, the little clever thing that attracts people, that moves them off center, that convicts them to my new religion, and that holds them in there once I have got them? How will I go about it? This next scripture would be the last way you would go about it. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. What? What? No beards, no long hair, no special uniforms, no horses and buggies rejecting the internal combustion engine. What? No special methods of carrying the body, no special methods of using the hands, and no special ceremonial liturgy that a person might want to accomplish on a given day, but just being concerned for people who don't have a father? being concerned for orphans, being willing to take such a person into your home and rear him as your own, concerned about, worried about, concerned over, not in the sense of worry, widows whose husbands have recently died and are alone and having a hard time in the world, perhaps financially up against it, maybe even physically ill, and also to keep himself unspotted from the world, meaning not contaminated by the Babylonian system that is like a huge, gross enemy that is continually attempting to pervert us. Let's go back to 1 Kings, the 18th chapter, and look at an opposite point of view. Here was some of the religion of the day of Elijah. We'll just cover it briefly because I think you're quite familiar with it. He is, of course, having the famous confrontation with the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal had one of these man-made religions, and they delighted in it. Now, this was the account Up here on Mount Carmel, all the prophets, 450 of them, were gathered. Verse 19, Ahab sent to the children of Israel and gathered them there. Verse 21, Elijah gave the famous declamation, How long do you halt between two opinions? And then he gave the simplest statement. Seems to be so logical. And why people cannot just obey this, I will never know. If the Eternal be God, follow Him. Isn't that strange that Elijah didn't say, Since the Eternal is God, follow me. But he said, If the Eternal be God, and then pointed to God, follow him. Very simple, very straightforward statement. Follow God, obey God, live according to God's laws, worship God, love God, serve God. But if Baal, then follow him. Apparently they weren't doing either very well. And you will find that that is largely true in many of these sects and cults and organizations and religions in the world, that oftentimes they don't even follow their own doctrine very well. They don't even follow their own leaders very well. And the people answered him not a word. Then Elijah said, I, I only remain a prophet of the eternal, but Baal's prophets are 450, 450 to one, quite a a tremendous number of people there. He was outnumbered by a, a great margin. Let us therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Eternal. Well, I won't read it all. You read it before, of how all morning, from morning till noon, verse 26, they were crying out, O Baal, hear us! And there was no voice, nor any that answered, and they leapt, and that meant limped about, as the margin says. And they did so because they believed in self-flagellation. They were people who delighted in what God condemned in cuttings of the flesh. What? No tribal marks? No pimples? No white and red paint? No tattoos? No big wooden discs in the upper and the lower lip? Uh, no stretching of the ears, no disfigurement of the human body. That's no fun. If you're going to give us religion, let us do something. Tell us there's a piece of our flesh we got to remove. The Jews loved that, went running around with very sharp knives. The word was that they even had what? No, I won't go into that. That's a different story. But the Apostle Paul, of course, you know the controversy. So, no doubt, it is fun to have all of those things to do. So it came to pass that Elijah mocked them. Now I'm glad that that scripture is in the Bible. I have a problem, and that is that once in a great while I have this Elijah complex. I know that I have a Jonah complex, but once in a great while I get into the Elijah syndrome, and I see some of these guys on television, and I tend to mock them. And I know that I shouldn't do that, at least I'm told that I shouldn't do it. But then I read this scripture, and it gives me a little support. Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud, for he is a god, either he's talking or he's pursuing or he's in a journey, or for adventure he sleeps and must be awakened. And they said, that's a good idea. Did you hear what Elijah said? Thanks for the help, Elijah, old boy. And so they cried aloud, and they cut themselves. And probably Elijah said, no, a little deeper. You know, you're not getting enough blood there, a little deeper. With their manner, with knives and lancets, till the blood gushed out upon them. Now, were these people sincere? I'd have to give them that. I don't think that a person is going to take a very sharp knife and just actually cut his arm or his leg until he bleeds until blood is literally gushing. And I guess that meant that they may have even severed more than a vein, one or two of maybe an artery, unless they are terribly dedicated. You'd have to be terribly dedicated. I know that when we stoop on the Passover to wash one another's feet, it is a humbling, a very sobering event, but really a very simple event. There's not a lot to it. You're not told, you know, that you've got to cut an inch off your little finger. You're not told you must flagellate your back with a whip. Uh, There are some religions that may tell you that you must do that, but the true church of God and God's Bible, the Word of God, certainly doesn't tell you to do that. So you've got to give them that they were sincere, if they were slicing knives through their flesh. And it came to pass, when midday was passed, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. And Elijah gathered them all and said, Come here to me, and then began to tell them what to do. And, of course, they put the wood in order, and they drenched it and drenched it and said, Do it the second and then the third time until water filled the trench, verse 35. Now, I timed this once, and I do have a stopwatch here, and I'll do it again. Verse 36, Elijah the prophet came near and said, Quote, Eternal God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Eternal, hear me, that this people may know that you are the eternal God and that you have turned their heart back again. End of his brief prayer. And the fire fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they did exactly as I think we would have done or we would do if we saw such a phenomenon in front of us. They got right down on their faces right next to the ground, fully prostrate, not just on one knee, and they said the Eternal, He is God, and the Eternal, He is God, and they acknowledged a Creator divine being in heaven above. And it took a miracle to really convict those people, and even then the prophets of Baal were murdered, were killed, put to death, maybe that was a better way to put it. That prayer took 19 seconds according to my stopwatch. Look at the simplicity of that prayer. I find it quite fascinating that that prayer took only about 19 seconds, and then this great miracle occurred. Now, Jesus Christ of Nazareth came warning people about what he called the leaven of the Pharisees. Let's go to Matthew, the 16th chapter. The Pharisees and Sadducees came, and this is after they had both been put to silence, and now they had even decided that they together would attempt to tempt Christ. Verse 1, And tempting, desired that he would show them a sign from heaven. And then, of course, he rebuked them and said, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and said, There will no sign be given them but the sign of Jonah the prophet. And that is, of course, the time that he was in the tomb. And then he told his disciples in verse 6, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Then their reasoning about bread follows, his lesson about how many baskets they took up. Jesus always would give an oblique lesson so that they would come to the truth by their own selves if they could. And finally he said in verse 11, How is it that you do not understand that I spoke not to you concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Both. At two extremes. The one, the ultra-conservatives on the right. The others, the ultra-liberals on the left. He didn't say just the Pharisees. He said either extreme is wrong. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, what was their doctrine? Let's go to Matthew, the 23rd chapter, and beginning to read in the first verse. Jesus spoke unto the disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do you not after their works? Now, this is interesting. They had customs, habits, modes, lifestyle. They had methods of governing and ruling in the church, methods of excommunication and disfellowshipment, and things that were... Totally extraneous, that were additional do's and don'ts tacked on to the law, yet they were the proprietors of the law. They sat in Moses' seat. They had that position of responsibility. Now, if you were today talking to a distraught member of God's church who was thinking about leaving the church, what advice would you give? Would you say, it doesn't matter what they do, you stick tight. And follow them. Is that what Jesus is telling us here? All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. And what did they bid observe? Well, the Sabbath, the annual holy days, tithing. We can see that very clearly. But do you not after their works? For they say, and they do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders. And what were those burdens? Well, we're going to see in just a moment. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. It didn't seem to touch their lives. In other words, the people were having to go through a lot of very, very tight restrictions, uh, a very rigorous system of do's and don'ts, but the leaders themselves, well, that wasn't all all that much of a problem. Verse 5, all their works they do for to be seen of men. That was very important to the Pharisees. They had to have a certain reputation among the community, among men. They made broad their phylacteries, and that was a the thing they wore that spoke of their great deeds, and enlarged the borders of their garments. Now that was, of course, the trappings of office. It was their uniform. And the Bible originally, clear back in the book of Deuteronomy, and Numbers, Leviticus, and so on, had told them not to do that. They were not to change the original garb that God had given the priests of Levi. But they did so. They weren't satisfied with the way God had made it, and they thought it could become more ostentatious and be far more impressive to the people if they just enlarged the borders a little and put a little more decoration on there. And love the uppermost rooms at feasts. Now, at the Feast of Tabernacles, you will not find a section reserved right up in the front for the entirety of the ministry which presupposes that they have free access above and beyond all the lay membership. Because of this principle, perhaps, because of the idea that ministers are servants and that they are no better than lay members, that oftentimes perhaps they're not as good, that they have a calling, and that calling is to be the servant of the people, but it is not to lord it over people, not to take the uppermost seat each time, and the chief seats in the synagogues, Isn't Jesus teaching us when he puts down the Pharisees for this carnal ostentation, this carnal-minded grabbing at number one in line, first place, the front seat, the chief seat, the upper room? Is there any human being who is going to argue that Jesus is not plainly telling us that in God's church the ministry should not do that? That there should be no such great ostentation and pomposity attached to the ministry? And greetings in the markets, and to be called of men reverend, or rabbi, or evangelist, or whatever. Teacher, teacher, rabbi, rabbi. But be not you called rabbi, which merely meant teacher or professor. For one is your master, even Christ, and you are all equal. You are all brethren, And call no man your father upon the earth. Now, this really is shooting down your church that you want to start. If you can't have a hierarchy, if you can't start out with a great leader who would have the title of father, and then beneath him would be rabbis, you could call them whatever you want to call them. They could be vice presidents or whatever title you want to put on them, and construct this. And if you're starting out with a a presupposition that everybody is equal, that everybody are brethren in here, well then, you're really shot down, I think, if you want to construct it the way most people just naturally would. Call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. I remember one time in Israel many, many years ago... And there frequently are these tours that are taken over there where various churches and religions take people on tours of the Holy Land. And there was this Baptist pastor, and uh, he knew who I was from television, and we shook hands and had a little pleasant chat for a minute. I don't know how this came up, but I remember it, and I've used it in in jokes ever since. He said uh, how humble he was, and then he told me, oh yes, he was humble, because he said, I majored in humility in college. And I thought that was kind of a funny joke. But he was not a really humble man. He was was very bombastic, and he was very outgoing, and so on. But uh, I've never forgotten that, that he majored in humility. If there were such a class, maybe we should major in it. Verse 13, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. Now, how did they do that? How do you, by your preachments, by your posturing, by your religion, by your sermons or your lifestyle by your doctrine, how do you shut up the kingdom of heaven where people just don't even want to look into it? Well you repulse them, you repel them, you make it appear so difficult, so impossible that they just give up in defeat, you browbeat them, you beat them down, you make them feel so inferior to you that they just know that they can never get into God's kingdom. There are many ways, I suppose, that through various methods of mass psychology, fear tactics, and a very involved and elaborate system of do's and don'ts the way the Jews did, that you could shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. Certainly these Pharisees were doing so. For you neither go in yourselves, and that was quite an indictment, Neither do you allow them that are entering, meaning the little flock who who wanted to change their lives and who wanted to get into God's kingdom, neither do you suffer or permit those who are entering to go in. Now you're getting a look at that leaven, that doctrine, that system of religion that was extant in Jesus' day. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses. How did they devour widows' houses? Well, obviously they allowed the widows to give and give and give, and they never gave in return. They allowed the widows to gradually give until they were destitute, and then the widows sold their houses and gave all of that money, and finally the widows were utterly reduced to a beggar in the street. But the Pharisees were quite happy because all the money that the widow ever had after her husband died and her source of income was cut off was tied up in her house. And this is Jesus Christ of Nazareth talking. Long prior to the days of Columbus, the days of the United States of America, prior to the Dark Ages, prior to the Renaissance, prior to any of our births, it has nothing to do with any church situation today or with Garner Ted Armstrong, but Jesus of Nazareth said that the religious leaders in his day were reaching out and were ripping off the widows, didn't he? Now, if there's a part of the Bible that I should not preach, then, of course, I need to know what part of the Bible is out of bounds that I should not mention today for the idea that perhaps it will bring up unwanted comparisons. But I can't help that. Jesus said that they devoured widows' houses. And for a pretense, make long prayer. I've heard some of those. I've been in some where you stand and you stand on this foot and then the other one, you gather your socks, they slowly disappear down into your shoes. Uh, you, you knot and unknot your tie, you sweat and wipe the sweat, and you wonder, when is this guy going to run down? And that, of course, is, is silly. It is nonsense, it is posturing, it is ridiculous. For a pretense, make long prayer. And long prayers in public, when they should be a simple very sincere, and yet, in a sense, a formal opening of a service or the closing of a service, long prayers, like a person might pray at home, but do it in the pulpit in front of people, are always pretense. They're never anything more than that. Therefore, you shall receive the greater condemnation or judgment. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte. That's fascinating, isn't it? And that is very interesting, I think, if you read it in its totality. What did it cost for them to compass sea and land, to get only one proselyte? Was it expensive to travel by sea in those days? Was it expensive to travel by land, to go dozens or hundreds or even thousands of miles, and the the fruit of their labor was to go all of this distance and to get just one proselyte? And when he is made... You make him twice more the child of Gehenna than you are. Now think about it. What was there about this perverted religion of that day that these Pharisees could drum into the heads of their proselytes once the proselyte was gathered into the fold, that by repetitious teaching, by fear tactics, by their very elaborate liturgical doctrinal ceremonial religion, made out of this innocent person, a person who started out to be, you know, by analogy, a Christian, although in the Pharisee religion Christianity was not a consideration because they didn't believe in Christ, but that's the analogy that we will draw, a sincere person, a true believer, maybe along the lines of Eric Hofer's book, and somehow over a period of time they produced out of this person a creature of hate, a creature who was doubly as bad as the Pharisees. And how bad were the Pharisees? Look at Matthew 23. And yet some of the little folk in their congregation, according to the words of your Savior and our coming judge and king, were twice, twofold more, the child of Gehenna than even the leaders. Now whose responsibility was that? Who ultimately was to blame? Woe unto you, you blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. And look at this judgmental decision they make involving the degree of sin of certain human acts and the labels that they placed on human behavior. Whosoever shall swear by the temple, that's nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. That's terrible. He's committed a sin for which he needs to be forgiven. You fools and blind, for which is greater... The gold, or the temple that sanctifies the gold. And, whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing, but whosoever swears by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. You fools and blind, for whether is greater the gift of the altar that sanctifies the gift? Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, swears by it, and all things thereon. Very easy to understand. And whoso shall swear by the temple, swears by it, and by him it dwells therein. And, of course, you're not supposed to do that. And he... "...that shall swear by heaven, swears by the throne of God, and by him it sits thereon." And what did Jesus say? As we'll go back and see in a moment. Swear not at all. That was the whole point they missed. The point was you're not to swear at all. And they're arguing about which you swear by. Which is the correct way to swear when Jesus said you don't, you don't make any oaths at all. "...woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay tithe of mint and anise and cummin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law." What were the weightier matters of the laws we learn in the Bible study? Judgment. That's just wise discretion. It has to do with believing the best, hoping and enduring all things in 1 Corinthians 13, always looking on the bright side, looking at both sides, but always giving the other fellow the benefit of the doubt. Mercy, just shoveling out mercy, giving mercy, always forgiving, even in advance. And faith. These ought you to have done, and not to leave the other undone. The weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. You blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Now what is a camel and what is a gnat, doctrinally? Would you say, for example, that someone who, let's say, is a thief, someone has stolen a large sum of money, and you know about it, and he's in your congregation. Now, there's also another person in your congregation, and every time he comes in, he reeks of cigarette smoke. And so you pass on down to the pastors that this person who comes into your congregation, who just is smelly with with, with cigarette smoke, he's got to get out. And so what you do, you land on him like a ton of bricks, and you say, look, you are a, a terrible insult to the church, And until you conquer the smoking habit, you cannot come back. We just don't want you to fellowship here anymore. You cannot come back. But, of course, the person who has stolen a monstrous amount of money, he is able to cover it up because he doesn't smell bad necessarily. Uh, You can't see any stain of the money between his fingers. Uh, There isn't a little uh, tag from a bull Durham sack hanging out of his pocket because that's where he hid the money. So you don't really know. And all sorts of other sins that you might say, Now, which is the napped? and and which is the camel It seems to me, unless I'm way off base, that the person who steals money is the camel. That's the camel kind of a sin. And the person that has a little physical habit where maybe he's hurting his body and his lungs, but maybe he visits the widows, maybe he's a kind person, maybe he's tremendously concerned for other human beings, he's got a lot of love, a lot of mercy, but he's got this physical habit that's got a hold of him. And he just can't quite break it. Well, let's get rid of him, but let's just overlook and just not, you know, believe that these other sins are in the congregation. Does that seem to be a fair analogy of straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel? That was their problem. Certainly, Christ's ministers in Christ's church today should not strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion. What a charge. Now, in a sense, he's talking about a church, isn't he? A religious organization, the most powerful one in charge of the whole religious community during Jesus' day, the ones who were the successors of the priesthood, the people, the Sadducees at least, who were in charge of the temple, and said that within they were full of extortion. Remember the prayer that was made by Joe the Pharisee when he looked at the publicans standing there in the temple, and he said how happy he was that he was not as other men. He said extortioners, unjust. A Very wise man has said that it's axiomatic that when you accuse someone of another sin, the chances are very great that you're almost always guilty of the very thing of which you accuse others. It's interesting to me that in the pharisaical prayer, the first accusation was others were guilty of extortion, of through fear, through threat. Extorting money out of people. When Jesus says the Pharisees were the ones full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward but are within full of dead men's bones. No comment is needed. It's a very plain analogy. And of all uncleanness, even so, you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within are full of hypocrisy and iniquity, so that it's buried, it's hidden, it's whitewashed over, the best foot is put forward, the exterior is gilded, golden, and beautiful. There's nothing prettier than some of that type of architecture of old. Some of these ancient old tombs that have passed, after all, the great pyramids are tombs. The great big building you see over there in Petra, as you enter through the seat, to see the biggest facade there, is a tomb, apparently. And some of the greatest churches in Europe are all filled with dead men's bones. The Basilica of St. Peter, Notre Dame in Paris, and of course, Il Duomo in, uh, not, in Florence or Firenze, as they say. These are beautiful, great tombs. They're ex- excellent, they're beautiful but inside they're full of dead men's bones. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, and as I've said before, it took me a lot of years to understand this statement, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, you be witnesses unto yourselves that you are the children of them which killed the prophets, filled you up the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell?" I know many religious people who would even judge Christ and would feel that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was very, very hard on the Pharisees. I I hope none of us would be that way. I think that this is perfect. I think it is the perfect response. It's got to be, because it's our Savior who gave that response to that kind of religion and what it did to those people at that time. No wonder he said that he was come to remove the captives out of prison, to take the blindfold off of the blind, to gently lead those that were with young and to release the prisoners, and so on, to declare the day of the eternal. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge right in your churches, and persecute them from city to city, which happened, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias, the son of Berechias whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation, And then he cried out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that killed the prophets and stoned them which are sent unto you, how often would I have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and you would not. The result... Well, you saw that result in 70 A.D., 71 A.D., and it is yet to occur again, as he goes right on to say, because Matthew 24 follows in a rather logical sequence. He goes out of the temple, the disciples begin to declaim about the buildings. He said, do you see all these things? The time is coming it will all be destroyed. And that is yet ahead of us today. Now going back to the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus began his teachings, the truth of God, it really was a very revolutionary doctrine. Totally contrary to what we just heard, he warns the disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, two extremes, about straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. And what do we read in James? That pure religion is visiting the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and keeping oneself unspotted from the world. Chapter 5, he opened his mouth and taught them, verse 3, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I was told when I was out in Pasadena about a time, and I think it was Howard Clark, I've forgotten who did this, maybe it was John Hill. And it was a sermon, and he walked up to the pulpit, and he never gave a single explanation or He didn't expound anything, he didn't announce anything, he didn't say good morning or anything. just stood there, opened the Bible, started reading, blessed are the poor in spirit, and read through all three chapters, without a pause, of the Sermon on the Mount, closed the Bible, and walked back to his chair and sat down. Everybody was just so dumbfounded they didn't know what in the world to make of all of this. And I thought it was a rather a novel idea. I don't plan on doing it today. I don't have enough time. I'd never even heard about it until I was out in Pasadena this time. But the people were just dumbfounded. How in the world could somebody get away with that? Maybe he was trying to give a message uh, in that. Maybe there was some oblique message that someone was to get out of it. The fact that he had not gone on to expound it, as if it really needed no expounding. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We know a lot of these things by heart, but let's look at a few of the examples that have to do with gnats and camels, and that have to do with how Jesus established his church and what we might call true religion. Let's begin in verse 25. Agree with your adversary quickly. Now the example that I'm more familiar is, fight your adversary tooth and toenail, struggle with him, batter him down with words, take him to court. See if you can't in some way get the biggest freak fight you've ever seen with your adversary. Jesus says, agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer and you be cast into prison. You mean a Christian? could be cast into prison if he doesn't follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. Verily I say unto you, you shall by no means come out thence till you pay the uttermost farthing. You mean that even Jesus wouldn't appear to you at night and get you out? Now in the one case, Peter was tossed into jail, but of course it wasn't because Peter was in an adversary situation with someone, and certainly in this condition it's obvious that the Christian is the one at fault. The Christian is the one who is able to do the patching up. He's the one that's able to do the agreeing, the one that is able to give a soft answer which turns away wrath from himself, but instead does the opposite that Jesus commands, begins to fight, ends up in jail. Peter was there because he was preaching the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, so he was led out by an angel. In going on looking at these great opposites of exactly what Jesus said to do, let's go down to verse 43. You've heard it's been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now I know in religious hearts and minds, right now today, where that teaching, and that's the pharisaical teaching, is still extant. People do love their neighbors, they do love their friends, and oh how they hate their enemies. It's alive and well in the hearts and minds of people who go to church and feel they are in God's church today. But Jesus says, I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the publicans the same. And if you salute or say hello to, greet, wave your hand, or whatever, your brethren only, then what do you more than others? Don't even the publicans do this. Be you therefore perfect, and in the tense is become therefore perfect, as your Father which is in heaven, is perfect. Going on a little bit, he shows about this thing of doing alms and prayer. And just a comment in passing about that in verse 5. When you pray, you shall not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. That's it. That's their reward. They're seen of men. They get this nice warm glow. They go away from it. Wasn't I gorgeous? Wasn't I religious? Wasn't that marvelous? I'm sure that I impressed them. That's it. That's the end of their reward. There is no more reward coming. But you, when you pray, enter into your closet. Well, your bedroom, it doesn't mean a little closet necessarily. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father which is in secret, and your Father which sees in secret shall reward you openly. It was a kid who came to Ambassador. He didn't last long. He dropped away many years ago, clear back in the early 1950s. And it was a balcony right next to my kitchen where we lived on a little street which long since was closed and is now underneath where the student center is. And this kid was one of these very religious kids. And there was an outdoor screen-in balcony out there, and that's where he went to pray. But the problem was that he liked to pray at the top of his lungs. And you would hear him a block away. Oh, Lord, help us with this and that. You know, and another guy's up there praying. I won't give you his name. He long since left the college, which is perhaps correct that he did so. But I couldn't understand, how do they reconcile these things when the simplest teachings of Jesus Christ would condemn such activity, and the other kids in the dormitory were terribly impressed. They just followed him around like a mother hen. I mean, he was the leader of the flock, because he's the only guy that had the courage to get out there and scream to God at the top of his lungs and just upset the entire neighborhood. When you pray, use not vain repetitions, as the heathen do. For they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not you therefore like unto them, for your Father knows what things you have need of even before you ask him. Skipping over to the seventh chapter, verse 1, and this really should read, Condemn not, because there are many other scriptures I could show you which show that we must judge righteous judgment. And of course, judgment is one of the finer points of the laws we just read. Meaning that we have to discern in discretion, in wisdom, and in mercy, but we have to judge from right to wrong. We have to be able to assess and to appraise what is the right way to go and what are right actions and so on, but not to condemn. Now I judge that smoking is wrong, but I do not condemn or say that that is a criterion for fellowship in the church of God. We will gently and kindly indicate that probably it would be a whole lot better for their lungs and the chances, because we do believe the federal reports of the Cancer Society and of the American uh, Attorney General, that his chances of getting lung cancer and just taking years off of his life and having other diseases and debilities are much higher if he smokes than if he doesn't smoke. But it's a purely physical thing that he is doing to himself, and probably is not going to handicap him any worse than, say, a legless veteran from Vietnam or somebody that is stove up with some registered chronic disease, such as terrible arthritis or something like that. And it is a thing which can get a hold of somebody. Now, when I am, am so absolutely sure that smoking is one of the worst sins around, and that drawing any kind of a pollutant into your lungs is a spiritual sin which is going to take you, if you do it, straight into a lake of fire, then I'll preach that. But I'm not really convinced of that. And if I believed, on the one hand, that if I were seated at a table of a famous Oriental king, and a part of their diet has to do with a tremendous you know, pork diet, in one nation in particular that may be true, where where pork is the mainstay of their diet, and I'm in the audience of a king. And if I believed in my heart, even though I really think it's a little bit of a perversion of the scripture, eat that which is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake and so on. But let's just say I believed it and I had a little perverted belief as a... to the way you look at it. You may think, well, I knew what the shambles were, and I knew that this was just clean meat. These were bullocks that were actually sacrificed to Molech or Baal or Dagon, and it had nothing to do with the texture of the meat or the kind of meat. It just had to do with whether they were offered idols, and we've been all through that. You'd learned it in Bible study and tucked it away in your notes. So your view of the Scripture was, under no circumstances, king or no king, do you ever eat. And that's your conscience. Well, you have a right to that. And I'm not revealing which way I feel. I'm just presupposing right now. You have a right to believe, if that's your belief, that you should never, under any circumstances, under pain of death, allow a little sliver of pork meat to pass your lips, that that would be one of the worst things that could ever happen. Now, on the other hand, you might be sitting by your lamp and open it up to get some fresh air, and a net flies in and circles around the lamp. And you may take a deep breath, and the net may go all the way down. And now you swallowed a gnat. I'll guarantee you, if somebody backed a camel into your room and said, Here, you know, here's a, here's a knife and a fork, have a go at this, you would think they're crazy. So, anyway, presupposing that you believe this, how would I come off looking if I, as a minister of Jesus Christ, told you, as members of God's church, Look, if you smoke, you're not welcome here. Don't ever come back. Go out there in the world, out there, subject to Satan, the devil, and his demons, away from God, away from God's people, you are hereby cut off from God. You have no further contact with God, therefore God will deny you his Holy Spirit, so you on your own now, as a purely mechanistic, human, carnal, physical being with your own strength, you are to go out here and break the smoking habit. And when you've done that on your own strength, with no help from God, you come on back and you're going to be good enough to meet with the rest of us folks who will eat a little pig now and then if it would bother our conscience, you know, I mean if it would if it would hurt the feelings of a king if we're sitting in front of, we wouldn't want to offend him, so we eat a little pork now and then. I don't know if I could quite reconcile those two or not. So when I try to discern and I try to judge human behavior, I don't condemn Why should I condemn someone who has a habit of cigarettes when I've got a habit of coffee, for example? And I do have a coffee habit. I have to acknowledge it is a habit. I'd be a liar if I said otherwise because on atonement I get this splitting headache. That to me is an indication that if I haven't had my coffee, I'm having a reaction. I've read articles. I know it does something to my little aisles of Langerhans. It does weird things to my body, but it gives me... more of an alert feeling. i have a sip of coffee before broadcast. I tend to feel that I do a better broadcast. Since the Bible allows stimulants, and I see the Bible even talking about giving strong drink to him that perishes or even is of a heavy heart to raise people's spirits and to give them happiness and maybe as a painkiller, I can go along in principle with the idea that it probably isn't a sin to drink tea or coffee or just every stimulant that Almighty God has placed in nature. But maybe we could argue that 20 years from now. But with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. Or with what condemnation you pass out. That is exactly the kind of harsh treatment you're going to be given. Verse 3, why do you behold the mote in your brother's eye, and consider not the beam that is in your own eye? I love the teachings of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They to me are so beautiful. I love to talk about gnats and camels and motes and beams, because it's a logical religion to me. The little things in Jesus' teaching remain little things. And the big things, justice, mercy, forgiveness, love, remain great, big, exalted things. And Jesus never twisted the two around. He never took a nap and made it into a camel. He never took a camel and made it into a nap and said, here, eat it. He just left camels, camels, and gnats, gnats and then told us that we're to discern the difference between the two. How will you say to your brother, let me pull the moat out of your eye, and behold, a beam is in your own eye? Let me see. I wanted uh, one scripture. I, I want to turn quickly to the 18th chapter. I want to find something here, and if I don't, I'll just refer to it before I have to close right quickly. The 18th chapter of the book of Matthew is a method of dealing with a weak brother. Let's say someone who through some trauma of their life, maybe a divorce situation, maybe a financial situation, maybe a sex problem, maybe an appetite problem, uh, maybe they get in trouble with the law, maybe they leave a lot of bad debts and write some bad checks and are running out here from the law, whatever, you know, any kind of a situation. These people were judging Jesus continually. He picked up the little children and gave this statement, Woe to those who offend these little ones, better than a millstone, verse 6, were hung about his neck and he were drowned in the sea. Verse 7, Woe unto the world because of offenses. It must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot offend you, and again, this is like a a kind of an analogy. Obviously, if you steal and you cut off one hand, you can still steal with the other one. Obviously, if you see something evil with both eyes, you can see something evil with one eye. He's not talking about mutilating the body. He's talking about something so close to you, it's like a part of your life. And like we say in the vernacular, uh, I hated doing it. It was as difficult as cutting off my arm or giving up this or that was like severing my leg. And we use that as an analogy. He's saying that's right. If giving up this habit or giving up that way of life is just like severing a leg, you do it because it's better to enter into life maimed, and that's only by analogy, than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Verse 10, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. Now what are these little ones? What are they like? When you meet a little one out here, let's say you meet a lady professional lady who's got a professional career, she dresses really neatly, and she uses a little makeup, blush, eyeshadow, whatnot, and uh, she knows really how to dress and to appear. Maybe she is in charge of her own business. Maybe she's in real estate. Maybe she is a doctor. Maybe she is a whatever, you know, in in charge of an interior decorating business. Maybe she is is, uh, actually managing an office in which there are many men that are present, and she is the person who manages this business. But she begins to come to church, learns a little bit, and is a little one. Now, I know so many examples, I could keep you here all afternoon and telling you what not to do. I remember so well. It was a little guy. He was dark and swarthy, little hooked nose. He happened to be Armenian. But some of our superdeacons, one person in particular that I'm thinking about, uh, didn't know that. Well, in Pasadena, in the gymnasium before the auditorium was built, that was the headquarters church. And we'd established a church, and back during these days, the belief in white Anglo-Saxon America and Britain was quite fervent, quite strong, alive and well. So they insisted that all of the black people... And incidentally, the Mexicans, or Chicanos, they called them, one person probably still does in the ministry, which must be just maddening to American-born, or American citizens who are Americans, Mexican is a nationalistic term, not a racial one, but they were called the Mexicans. Anyway, um, this little guy was the proprietor of a cafe, and a lot of the faculty and some of the students would go to the cafe for lunch and get a sandwich and then go back to work. And they just went trooping over there it was real close to the college. Well, finally, because of their good example, and he became quite fast friends with a lot of them, he and his family, I guess, went to church one day. They were met right at the door walking into the gymnasium by the superdeacon in the flesh and said, I'm sorry, but all of you Mexicans are supposed to go down to the Los Angeles church. Well, of course, he never darkened the door of the church again. Now, what would you say Christ is going to say to that man at his coming? He's to, you know, you know, Hey, I want to tell you, I want to recreate for you the scene. Remember that the door of the gymnasium when the little one came? Remember what you said? Somehow there's got to be some kind of a comeuppance, hasn't there? Don't we all have to finally have to have Christ just nab? Listen, you, do you remember exactly and just portray to us, that includes me, what I've done, what I've said, and make us really repent of it before we get into God's kingdom? Or will there be a lot of things sort of left like loose ends be hanging out there that we don't really see, we don't really understand just how far out of Christ and how far offensive to Christ we really were? Verse 11, The Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep, here's the church by analogy, and one of them be gone astray, drifting into this problem I described, doth he not leave the 99 and nine and go into the mountains and seek that which is gone astray, And how does he do that? Here's the little one. Supposedly, he is asked a very embarrassing question. What is Garner Ted Armstrong's salary? Or where does the money go? Or whatever. really a bad question. So he is told out here somewhere, okay, put him out. But by analogy, you go out and you're looking all through the mountains for this sheep. And finally, you come up this big, you know, steep mountain and here in this crevasse. Way down there's this little bitty helpless sheep. This lost one, this so-called former Christian, and you see it down there, looks up, and blah. so you grab this 44 magnum, and bang, bang, and you go back to the congregation, and you say, I got the little beggar, I got that lost sheep, shot him dead, we're rid of him forever, don't worry about him anymore, we purged the church of the little lost sheep, that'll be the way to get him. It doesn't say that. It says, If so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep because he overcame the problem, you won him back, he's back among your fold again, than of the 99 which went not astray. Does Jesus look upon the departure of a brother in trouble as flushing out evil from among you necessarily every time? Is it getting rid of the evil in the church when someone, through hurt feelings or neglect or some physical problem or spiritual problem of their own, leave the church? Not at all. It says we're to do everything in our power to restore them, to love them, to understand them, to get them back if we can, to heal that wound. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, again, the... Standard formula for problems in the church that Christ lays down. Moreover, if your brother, there was a guy named Moreover in that church apparently, told him Moreover, if, he'll, never mind, if your brother shall trespass against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Standard formula, somebody's guilty of a lot of trespasses. Other people build up a case they come to the one in authority behind the back of the third party and say, He has done A through Y. And probably a lot more we don't have room on the page to contain. You then, if you're in the position of authority, react with enormous anger and give orders to one of these or yet to another party, get rid of him. Is that the formula that Jesus gives us for solving these problems? No, it says... If your brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone, in private. No other ears present, no tape recorders going, just private conversation. If he shall hear thee, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, then take... One or two more. Either one. One who knows about it or two more. Total of three. Four of you in the total group. That in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Everybody will remember. One man's memory might be faulty, but certainly three of you will remember what went on. Then, if he will neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. Meaning, then and only then, take it to the ministry, someone in authority. But if he neglect to hear the church, then let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Three steps there. He gets an opportunity to hear the problem, hear the charges. He gets an opportunity to present his side of it. Witnesses are there. He is appealed to. People ask him, please understand, we're not trying to hurt your feelings. We just want to settle a problem and so on. And this is a process that Jesus says must take place in the church. Verily I say unto you, he goes on to say, to the ministry, to all of the disciples who became apostles, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then goes on to say that if two of you, because he didn't want just one to be alone, he knew that judgment might be lacking. Two or more were required of James, Peter, and John of the Apostles. Shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together... And then came Peter and asked the famous question about how often should he, of course, if his brother repents, how often should he forgive him. Pure religion then is what? If we were going to start a church, would we do it through various liturgical ceremony? Would we do it with various restrictions involving garb, dress, or formulas of men and women's hair? Or would we do it exactly as Jesus Christ did it? His teaching was completely revolutionary. You see the sample in Matthew 23 of what was that evil, rotten, restrictive leaven. It was unfair. What was good for the goose was not good for the gander. The guys up on top in the Pharisaical ladder lived any way they wanted to riotously, licentiously, they were totally corrupted, they were extortioners, they were devouring, devouring widows' houses. But Jesus Christ of Nazareth takes the clerics, takes the priesthood, if you will, of the church, and yanks them down, and places their feet on the floor, and says, look around you at my sheep. You are equal with them, you serve them, and in that capacity you have a special calling. But you're no better than they are. And one of them strays, you just you compass heaven and earth to go and get him back, not assassinate him and leave him out there. And the method that Jesus gave in governing his church, in leading it, exactly what we are doing in this process of becoming a member of the very family of God in this human life, is very, very different from the way many organizations in this world have made it. Pure religion is this to visit the fatherless, the widows in their affliction, and to keep one completely unspotted from this earth. And remember then in closing, the 25th chapter of Matthew, when those separations are made between those who visited, the ones who were naked, afflicted, in prison, destitute, the surprise element is the important thing in that particular analogy. Those who did not are surprised that they didn't earn salvation by all of the marvelous things they did. And they have an excuse. They said, when did we ever see you naked or afflicted? When did we see you hungry? When were you, Lord, ever in jail? Inasmuch as you did it not to the least of these, my brethren, you did it not unto me. But conversely, and perhaps even more profoundly interestingly, those who are given the reward of eternal life are equally surprised to find out that visiting someone in their affliction... And just the way you treat people, of loving people, being humane and warm and kind and forgiving and understanding, to people, they were actually going along the ladder toward salvation at a far faster clip than those who seemed to be so religious in great high office. Never forget that. I like the way Jesus started His church, I think, better than I like the way most people start theirs. I think I'd like to remain a member of the one Jesus started. I just somehow like the way he does things better than the way most men do.